Hello everybody. Labor Know Your Rights is brought to you by the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. We are now a proud member of Labor Radio Network. Looking for a radio program or podcasts on the labor movement? This is the network to find it. Simply go to www.laborradionetwork.org. With the way cleared for them to organize into 1199, thousands of hospital workers signed up, one after another. The workers voted in election for 1199, and the voluntary hospitals recognized the union as a collective bargaining agent for non-medical employees following the elections. A few weeks after the legislature had amended the state labor law to cover hostile workers, the New York Times described Local 1199 as the nation's largest organization of hospital workers with contracts covering 8,500 employees at 24 voluntary hospitals. During the 1959 and 1962 strikes, the technical and professional hospital workers, including many social workers, had remained on the job, enabling the hospitals to operate. In 1964, a campaign was launched to bring these staff into 1199. The drive began with the formation of 1199's Guild of Professional, Technical, and Clerical Employees, directed by Jesse Olson, a former pharmacist and one of the 1959 strike leaders. The resulting successful unionization of the technical and professional workers in the voluntary hospitals not only brought them to the benefits of union membership, but also immeasurably strengthened the bargaining position of all other workers in the hospitals. By 1965, Local 1199 had scored a number of important achievements. Hospital union membership had grown from five or 6,000 in 1959 to 30,000. On March 23, 1968, three weeks before his assassination, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. told an 1199 rally, You have provided concrete, visible proof that when black and white workers unite in a democratic organization like Local 1199, they can move mountains. Was moved shortly afterwards in full-page ads in leading New York newspapers, Local 1199 announced a hospital crisis and informed the public, We are for the patients. Clean and prepare the food. Yet we cannot support our families with wages we are paid. Most of us are black or Puerto Rican, but all of us are poor, and we had enough of that. On July 1st, 1199ers triumphantly celebrated a new agreement in which 21,000 workers who had been earning from 70 to $76 a week were to receive an average of $88 a week immediately and $100 a year later. In addition, for the first time, the union agreement included a provision for a pension, 
with the employers paying 5% of the gross payroll into a pension fund for the first time. Two, a job training and job upgrading program was included under which employers were to pay 1% of the gross payroll into a fund to be administered jointly by the union and management to subsidize workers while they trained for better jobs. Local 1199's spectacular 1968 success in winning a $100 per week minimum for non-professional voluntary hospital workers in New York City, climaxing a decade of dramatic progress in its organizing effort, sent shockwaves through the unorganized hospital and healthcare communities throughout the nation, both labor and management. In October 1968, the union announced the formation of the National Organization Committee of Hospital and Nursing Home Employees with Coretta Scott King as honorary chairperson. Immediately, local 1199B was organized to represent the hospital workers in Charleston, South Carolina, and after a strike which lasted 113 days, during which 1199 and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference united to carry on the struggle. The workers of the Medical College Hospital won a $1.60 per pay floor and wage boosts of 30 to 70 cents an hour. They also won the establishment of a credit union and a grievance procedure in which union could represent them. The national growth of 1199 can be said to have began in earnest after the Charleston strike. Local 1199E won an election to represent 1,500 service employees, mostly black women, at the John Hopkins Medical Center in Baltimore. In the contract, the workers in the lowest category who had been earning $1.60 an hour received a minimum wage of $100 per week plus fringe benefits, which include health insurance, an increase in paid holidays, an employer finance pension plan. Farm workers were still treated as if they had no rights under the law. They were excluded from coverage of the Taft-Hartley Labor Management Relations Act of 1947 and the jurisdiction of the National Labor Relations Board. Like the hospital workers, until 1959 they had never been effectively organized. After the failure of unionizing campaigns in the 1930s, virtually no one in the labor movement thought farm workers could be organized. Added to their legal disabilities were those caused by the way agricultural labor was recruited and housed. Table raisins and wine grapes are California's most valuable crop and require the largest number of workers at the peak of the season. 76,650 are 25% of the total seasonal and year-round hired labor. Great production, however, relies in part on comparatively stable, fairly permanent, semi-skilled labor. Since the workers must prune the vines in the winter, then girdle the trunks of the vines to prevent sap from returning to the roots, then thin the berries, in the spring, strip the leaves and toss the cane to expose bunches of grapes all before the harvest. Moreover, the grapes have to be continually sprayed throughout the growing season. Since the demands of the modern grape industry require a large force for up to nine months of the year, thousands of grape workers make their permanent homes in small towns throughout the San Joaquin, Sacramento, Imperial, and Santa Clara 
valleys where the bulk of the grapevines are located. In 1964, Congress ended the Bracero program, but Public Law 414, the McCarran Immigrant Act, allowed limited numbers of Braceros to be used in harvesting as long as they did not depress the prevailing wage pattern. During the summer of 1965, the first harvest after the end of the Braceros program, the Department of Labor announced that Braceros would be authorized for hiring by the growers only if the workers in the county for which they were requested were making $1.45 an hour, 20 cents more than the prevailing wages in California. Radio stations throughout the agricultural valleys of California announced that $1.45 was the minimum that had to be paid before Braceros could be used under Public Law 414. Many farm workers interpreted these radio broadcasts and various newspaper reports to the same effect as meaning that they were now to be paid $1.45 an hour. In actuality, however, there was no minimum wage for farm workers. The minimum applied only to those counties for which Versarios could be authorized. This misunderstanding provided the catalyst for the Delano strike, which began in September 1965. When it was over five years later, unionization had come for farm laborers, the last unorganized industry in the United States. In 1960, the Agriculture Operating Committee, AWOC, AFL-CIO, and the United Packing House Workers of America had carried on a large organizing strike among Filipino workers in Cochilla. The 1960 strike had been defeated by the refusal of the United States government to remove Rosarios as required by law and by the use of hundreds of armed and deputized ranchers to intimidate the strikers. In September 1965, the Filipinos struck again, this time for $1.45 an hour, and called in the AWAC to help them. This time, they were successful. The unity of the Filipino grape cutters combined with the labor shortage caused by the changeover to non-bracerial labor forced the growers to pay the 20 cents an hour raise. While they did not sign a contract, the Filipinos returned to work. On September 8, 1965, the AWOC led the Filipino workers in a strike against the Delano growers for a contract covering wages of $1.45 an hour and $0.25 cents a box and improvements in working hours and working conditions. Many Mexican-Americans were crossing the picket lines, so strike leader Jerry Eflong went to Cesar Chavez of the National Farm Workers Association, NFWA, while Chavez felt that his NFWA was not prepared for such an extensive strike, he agreed to cooperate. Thousands of leaflets were handed out calling Mexican-American workers to a meeting to vote on a strike. On September 16th, the NFWA joined the strike, which quickly spread. It also made the Spanish word for strike, Helga, part of the national vocabulary. The National Farm Workers Association was formed in Fresno in September 1962 at a convention attended by about 300 delegates, practically the entire membership. It was organized primarily by Cesar Chavez, but the first person Chavez called upon to work with him in organizing the Mexican-American farm workers into a union was Dolores Horta. Chavez was born on an 80-acre farm near Yuma, Arizona, 
where his Mexican-American parents tried to scratch out a living from the arid desert. The farm failed in the Depression, and when Caesar was 10, the family packed everything it owned into a decrepit automobile and headed for California. There they began the circuit familiar to every migrant worker in California, working each crop in its turn, asparagus, grapes, beets, potatoes, beans, and plums. Cesar Chavez worked at picking, hoeing, thinning, leafing, digging, and pruning until he went over to work in a lumber mill. When he went over to the CSO, he proved to be an exceptional organizer, establishing some 36 branches among Mexican-Americans in California and a few in Arizona. Dolores Herta was born into a farm worker's family that had turned to running a small hotel in Stockton. She had earned a teacher's credentials from Stockton College, but instead of teaching, she did Catholic charity work and joined the CSO after meeting Ross. She was sent to Sacramento, the state capital, as a full-time lobbyist for the CSO to pressure the legislature for disability insurance, unemployment insurance, and minimum wage bills for farm workers. The AFL-CIO's AWOC offered Chavez an organizing job, but he insisted on building his own organization and started to work at organizing in the fields. While his wife worked in the fields to support their family of eight children, Chavez organized small meetings of workers sympathetic to the idea of a union of agricultural laborers. Dolores Herta, who had had some previous experience with the AWOC in Stockton, also left the CSO to join Chavez in organizing a new union. The foundation was laid during the Delano Grape Strike, although the only strong area of the NFWA were Porterville, Erlemont, and Delano itself. The members played an important role when the Great Strike came, while Chavez took over the leadership of the struggle, picketing began at dawn when workers moved out into the fields. The pickets carried NFWA banners with the Union symbol, a black Aztec eagle on a red flag with a single word, Hidalgo, at one location two miles outside of Delano. A dozen young men who made up the pickets were described by a reporter as marching slowly and with great dignity while a stout and forceful young woman addressed the fields across the road in Spanish through a portable loud heller. As the NFWA and AWOC pickets pulled crews out, the growers simply trucked in loads of scab workers from Texas and Mexico. But support for La Casa, as the struggle of the farm workers was being called, was growing. In 1966, a Senate investigation committee studying migrant labor came to Delano and held hearings in the local high school. This not only gave the striking grape workers a national forum, but it also transformed Senator Robert Kennedy into their national champion. In addition, Bishop Hugh Donahue, speaker for all California's Roman Catholic bishops, voiced to the Senate committee the church's support of the right of farm workers to organize. Moreover, unions like the UAW, the Amalgamated Clothing Workers, and the Packing House Workers rallied behind the striking grape workers. But even with this strong clerical support and even with the help of large unions, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC, and the Congress of Racial Equity, CORE, 
the strike did not appear to be effective. It was then that Cesar Chavez called for a nationwide consumer boycott, first against Shinley Industries, which owned a large ranch in Delano, then against DiGiorgio Products, S&W Foods, and Trees Sweet, then against the 11,000-acre Gumara Vineyards, and finally against all California grape. Because the farm workers were not covered by federal labor laws, such as the Lundrum Griffin Act, they remained unaffected by sections of the legislation that made use of the secondary boycott illegal. Hundreds of farm workers, some with their wives, were dispatched to urban centers all over the country and even Canada to promote and organize the boycott. Later, Dolores Herta was sent to New York to direct the boycott in that city. She told interviewers, there were no ground rules. I thought, 11 million people in New York and I have to persuade them to stop buying grapes? Well, I didn't do it alone. When you need people, they come to you. You find a way. The boycott spread the word of La Haugel as the strike in the grape fields was commonly known across the nation into Canada and for the first time trade unionists in New York, Cleveland, Toronto, Chicago, Houston, and other cities met farm workers firsthand. They learned about oppression of those who picked grapes, lettuce, and other farm products. A new consciousness of the Chicano in the United States was born as a result of the Hago, especially in the trade union movement, notes a reporter who covered the strike. Meanwhile, a merger of the NFWA and the AWOC had been consummated. Under the leadership of Cesar Chavez, instead of being given the status of a national or international union, the new organization was given the status of an organizing committee under the Executive Council of the AFL-CIO and was called the United Farm Workers Organizing Committee, AFL-CIO. However, it was able to form directly affiliated locals which were given relative autonomy as in any international union. The first table grapes bearing a union label, a fierce black eagle in a white circle on a red flag were shipped to market this week, read a dispatch from Delano, California, dated May 30, 1970. The grapes came from seven growers who, unable to withstand the effects of the boycott any longer, had signed contracts with the UFWOC. Then, on July 29, 1970, 26 Delano growers, led by the huge Gamaro company, filed into the UFWOC's hiring hall to sign the contracts that ended the bitter five-year grape strike. Under the contract negotiated by Dolores Horta, workers were to receive $1.75 an hour, a raise of $0.10 cents plus a $0.25 cent bonus for each box picked. The following year, the rate would go up to $1.90. In addition, the growers would contribute $0.10 cents an hour to a health and welfare plan and $0.02 cents an hour to an economic development fund to be used for low-cost housing and the retraining of workers displaced by automation. The growers agreed not to use certain pesticides, including DDT, in the vineyards and to accept a union hiring hall. The UFWOC announced that the grape strike, six weeks short of its fifth anniversary, had been ended. It was the greatest victory in the history of farm labor organizing. Although most of the farm workers were not sex-determined, 
Traditionally, pruning operations in the grape fields had been limited to men, but in 1971, the men, acting on the union's suggestion, taught their wives the intricacies of pruning. This ended anti-women bias in the fields. Women picked, pruned, and packed in the fields, canneries and sheds, side by side with men, and they built their union together. When the United Farm Workers was organized in 1974, with Cesar Chavez as president, Dolores Herta was elected first vice president and women were involved in every aspect of union leadership. In 1977, Jessica Govia, who had worked on the UFW staff for 11 years, was elected to the executive board. Of the six men on the executive board, three were Chicanos, one was Filipino, and one was white, and one black. When Dolores Herta was asked how it happened, then in the very culture from which the word machismo derives, the women have more visible, vocal, and real power of decision than women elsewhere. The union had made a conscious effort to involve women, gave them every chance for leadership. The men did not always want it. In the beginning, at the first meeting, there was only men. This was changed, but the attitude did not disappear. There is an undercurrent of discrimination against women in our own organization, she pointed out. Even though Caesar goes out of his way to see that women have leadership positions, Caesar always felt strongly about women in the movement. The union's nonviolent ideology was influenced by this. One of the reasons our union is nonviolent is that we want our women and children involved, and we stay nonviolent because of the women and children. And to wrap this one up, I'd like to thank our sponsor, the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members converse.